0: Hello and welcome to the Journey Further podcast. My name is Nathan Brush, your host, and this is a show all about learning from the people and businesses who are on a mission to do things differently. I'm incredibly excited to be sharing this episode with you. My guest this week requires little introduction. It's Rory Sutherland, vice chairman of Ogilvy, the head of Ogilvy's behavioral science practice and all-round legend of Adland. For years, Rory has spoken at conferences around the world, including numerous TED Talks, challenging people to think differently about the way they solve problems. This thinking culminated in Rory's book, Alchemy, The Surprising Power of Ideas That Don't Make Sense, published back in 2019, I would highly recommend you go out and pick up a copy. If this is the first time you've heard Rory speak, then you are in for a treat. This conversation is insightful and entertaining in equal measure. Here goes. Rory, hello, and thank you so much for joining me on the podcast
1: ah oh, it's a great pleasure i've been listening to your podcast fairly avidly and you've had some fantastic prior speakers and particularly good to hear my old colleague giles rees jones from what three words which if ever there was a business with a mission that's it
0: yeah, indeed. I love speaking with Giles. Uh, yeah, you're, you're completely right. A very, very grand mission at, at that. They really are trying to change the way that the world works. Um, well, no, Roy, um, as, as I say, it's a pleasure to have you on. And I'd like to kick off by asking you the question we start every single discussion with. And that is, what's the wrong you want to write?
1: I think if you want to get slightly psychological about that question. I think I had a fairly conventional education uh, from a partly scientific family in fact my brother's an astrophysicist my grandfather was a doctor and so forth and then I ended up spending 20 years or so in the advertising industry particularly in creative departments and what I noticed after about well I I think I noticed it more or less when I first arrived but I particularly noticed it 5, 10, 15 years later was that there's an approach to problem solving uh, in advertising the creative approach to problem solving is completely underdeployed elsewhere in other words i always think that um, an ad agency is a slightly awkward entity because it's it's a general hospital which has got a sign above the door which says cosmetic surgery and we've got this incredibly valuable creative talent and creative approach which becomes kind of almost instinctive in solving advertising problems. And my great mission, I think, is to see that same approach deployed far more widely for the solution of completely different problems in, for example, everything from public policy to uh, business to understanding how capitalism really works, to be honest. And I think that um, creativity is deployed far too narrowly. That's probably my great uh, beef which is that essentially decisions get taken by highly rational people on the basis of, you know, uh, rational sequential logic. And then at the very last moment, they'll deploy it to, you know, they'll add a few creative people to add a few little bells and whistles to a framework that's already been designed. And I think in many cases, this is the wrong way around. And the very simple way, if you want me to sum it up in a sentence, I think there are far more great ideas out there that can be post-rationalised than there are great ideas that can be pre-rationalised. And if we confine ourselves only trying those things which make sense in advance, uh, we're limiting the solution space massively.
0: No, that's really interesting and very well put. And I guess this is a, a complex question to answer, but I guess how how do you think that that creative thought process ended up getting siloed so much to just like, oh, that's an advertising f- function rather than, as you say, something which would have huge value being applied more broadly.
1: I mean, we're partly guilty ourselves. If you look at the history of that agency, it made its money really through commission. And so it has still a muscle memory, which is if we're not using any bought media, we're not really making any money. And even though we haven't been paid on commission since 1989 or so, I still see that um heavy kind of influence of the old days of of commission. Uh so we have a natural instinct to leak to communication solutions rather than broader creative solutions.
0: Yeah, that makes sense.
1: Um, so that's part of it. I think we're partly to blame. You know, we spent our time obsessing about the marketing director and obsessing about marcoms when actually there were far wider um problems which a creative approach could have solved I think and at the very least I mean there are a few characteristics I think of creative problem solving one of which is that it doesn't require it it does its working out later rather than beforehand in other words it accepts the idea of a creative leap that you can through bizarre means arrive at a possible solution which you can only explain in retrospect That's what I call Red Bull. You know, no one would have come up with it in advance. Okay, no one would have said if we want to compete with Coke, we need an expensive drink that comes in a tiny can and tastes kind of horrible. Okay. There are things out there which we can only explain by post-rationalization. And the creative approach accepts that. The other interesting thing I noticed with the creative approach is that in a complex system environment. Um, And you can actually prove this if you're involved in complexity science. The opposite of a good idea can be another good idea. And so we're also used to a problem solving environment where there isn't a single right optimal idea, where in many cases, what is a good idea, of course, depends on what your competitors are doing, because differentiation is necessary. And where, to be honest, there's more than one good idea out there. And in many cases, the right answer might be the opposite of another right answer. And so I noticed with creative people that where business people and rational people always shy away from contradiction, the creative person runs towards it. So that you know, the standard thing, if you like, in a non-creative world would be say to say that Guinness takes a bloody long time to pour, that Stellar Artois is ridiculously expensive, and that the trouble with Avis is it's number two to Hertz. Okay? And you'd say, My God, well, okay, those are our weak spots. You know, we need to bury those really quickly and get people to ignore them. And the creative person says, no, 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 because in psychology, you can actually turn lead into gold. You can turn a weakness into a strength. And from that, you get reassuringly expensive for sterile Artois. You get good things come to those who wait for Guinness. And you get we're number two, so we try harder for Avis. And I think there's something there, which is that the natural creative mind is deeply annoying to the highly rationalist mind because you're always looking in places and talking about things which to the rational sequential mind seems deeply irrelevant or to be honest counterproductive or counterintuitive but that's the whole point you know i mean with red bull it tastes disgusting comes in a tiny can and it costs a fortune those are all terrible things in a drink but they're brilliant things in a drug if you flip the context, the same thing that you always thought of was a weakness can actually become a strength. And I think the failure to notice these opportunities, because it runs contrary to our natural instinct to want to have single right answers which are produced by reliable process by which we can then make decisions which aren't necessarily particularly good in their consequences, but where the decision-making process was very easy to defend. And I think that's a bias which pervades business. Really, the best way to have a safe career in business uh, is not really to focus on the quality of the outcome. It's to focus on the quality and rigour of the decision-making that led to your decision in the first place. Because if you, if you have an appalling outcome, but your decision-making made sense, no one blames you and you keep your job. You're regarded as unlucky. If you do something slightly zany, counterintuitive or unexpected, well, if it goes right, you probably don't get the full credit. And if it goes wrong, you're next on the line. You know, all the blame focuses on you. And so this artificial certainty and things like economics and mathematical models are in many cases, they can be useful tools to decision making. They can be useful aids to framing a problem. But in many cases, what they're doing is they're a tube map, you know, useful at first in that the tube map's not a bad way of navigating the tube. What then happens is people start treating the tube map as if it were a map of London And our love of certainty and lack of ambiguity essentially causes us to be much more comfortable in a kind of fake, deterministic, Newtonian model of the world than we are actually embracing the world in all its glorious messiness and complexity.
0: Hey there, Nathan here. Just a quick interruption to invite you to join the Journey Further book club. This is a community we run where we share the best bits of books like Rory's Alchemy, Seth Godin's The Practice and so many others with the aim of helping you progress in your job. It's completely free to join, just head to journeyfurther.com or click the link in the show notes to sign up. Now back to Rory. So there's been a there's been essentially like a creep of mathematical theory and economic theory into the world of Uh, business or into the world of innovation where it's kind of it's welcome to an extent but it's not necessarily always what's going to help get the best
1: so i'll give you i'll give you a beautiful story and apologies to regular podcast stalkers of mine who will have heard this before But aside from my Eurostar story, which was half joke, half deadly serious, which is that if you want to get people to take the train to Paris rather than the plane, trying to compete on speed isn't the way to do it. Ultimately, planes are faster than trains, but actually competing on the quality of the time spent on board and the time spent on transit was a much better way to invest than reducing the duration of that time. OK, no nobody boasts that cruise ships are really fast because the whole notion is that you actually enjoy or find productive or relaxing the time you spend on board the ship. And there's no reason why a train can't compete on that psychological dimension rather than treat, competing on the engineering dimension of speed. But then I came up with another point, which is, look, if you want to increase the capacity of the West Coast line and you want to also reduce journey time between London and Manchester, you can spend 70 billion on high speed two. But before you do that, I can achieve those two aims in quite large measure with an app that costs a million pounds and would take about six months to instigate. You'd want to spend a few million advertising it as well, by the way. But nonetheless, you know, it's a seven figure solution, uh, not an eight or nine figure solution. And it's simply this, you redefine journey time as being end to end journey time, not time spent on the train. Because whenever I go to Manchester, I book an advanced first class ticket. Because if you book a full fare ticket, even in second class, it costs a billion pounds. Okay, (laughs) and then I can't afford to miss that designated train. So I turn up 45 minutes early at Euston for the leaving a margin of error. And I end up bumming around Burger King at Euston for, you know, 30 minutes. Now, with an app, you could simply say "Um, I'm at Euston and they would say pay us five quid and you can board the train in five minutes, which is leaving 50% 50% empty, or the train in 25 minutes, 20 minutes before your designated train, which is also basically half empty because they usually are. Okay, and I'd pay a bit of money so the app could actually make a profit over time. I'd reduce my journey time by 20 or 40 minutes by being allowed to use empty capacity on an earlier train. Okay, they'd also massively increase capacity because I don't want to get into the whole detail of of rail travel but allowing people to leave early on empty seats is a capacity increasing thing EasyJet will do that if you turn up insanely san- early at the airport and they've got seven free seats on the flight to Luton they'll let you fly back to Luton early because now they've got a second chance to take passengers on the subsequent journey in the seats that you've now vacated and you know if you look at the evacuation of the American embassy compound in Saigon right th- Every helicopter left full. As long as there were people on the roof trying to leave, they put, put them in a helicopter because you don't say, no, we're going to leave with this helicopter half empty because all of you guys, you're actually booked on the 2pm departure. Right. That would have been really fucking <laughs> annoying. Right. If you tried to get out of Saigon, if you'd had anally retentive helicopter pilot. Right. No, no, you're not booked on this flight. So I'm afraid we're going to leave empty okay now trains do that all the time it's a very interesting field actually called lateral category analysis if you look at what happens in one field of business quite often that problem has been solved in another field but no one's actually made the association and the point i'm making there what was so interesting about that is people didn't go that's a really interesting solution and we really ought to implement it before we spend billions on high speed two. they basically said no you're cheating because you're defining journey time differently and I said I'm defining journey time in the only way that's meaningful to a passenger, which is how long my effing journey takes, right? <laughs> and the last thing you want to reduce is the time on the train because that's high quality time. There's quite good Wi-Fi. I can work. I can look out of the window. You know, I can commune with my fellow Northerners. You know, my well, not my fellow, you know, cheery Northerners, right? I can do lots and lots of things, right, on the train. I don't mind being on the train. It's the hanging around for forty-five minutes to wait for a designated train. That pisses me off. So this is a better solution. But for some reason, that's regarded as cheating. If you solve the problem perceptually or you solve the problem through the eyes of the individual customer, that isn't regarded as valid because engineers are trying to solve the problem at the system level, which is fundamentally different. And so one of the important things is that when we start using maths, we think that maths is context free and perspective free. Okay, because we go, it's maths, it's like pure, these are the facts. Okay, now I'll give you a lovely example of this. Okay, the average household in Britain is probably, I don't know, 1.4 people per household. Okay, the average person in Britain does not live in a 1.4 person household, obviously. Um, But actually, the average person in Britain probably lives in a three person household because far more people live in bigger households than live in one person households. So in quite a lot of cases, and this is important, by the way, with things like um, wealth inequality, because people, not, not wrongly, get upset about uh, wealth inequality. But if you look at the statistics, they're comparing the, the poorest 10%, let's say, in 1990 with the poorest 10% in 2000, with the poorest 10% in 2010. OK, and they're saying, look, this group of the population haven't got any richer. But they're not the same people. OK, some of them are. And those are the people you should concentrate in. The people who are in the poorest decile of the population for 15 years in a row, they've, you know, they've patently got stuck somewhere. But actually, a trainee barrister who may be heavily in debt can technically be in the poorest 20% of the population. No one would think of him as poor because he's chosen to spend up front for the benefit of long-term prospects, Okay, I mean, a lot of students are probably you know, objectively extremely poor, but you wouldn't think of someone with a first-class degree in physics as being skint because he's got skills which he can parlay into future salary. Mm. And so it's really important, I think, that what we tend to do is we look at numbers and we go, numbers are facts. They're not facts. They're a particular take on reality and they're just as much. Um, the classic example, by the way, with trains is that people. Most trains aren't overcrowded. In fact, most trains are empty. But most people travel on crowded trains. So the perception of rail overcrowding. In fact, it's worse than that because infrequent rail users tend to use the train at Christmas, at Easter, and at kind of bank holiday weekends when there are engineering works just to add to the problem, and the trains are fucking rammed. Right, so our perception of train overcrowding is immense, even though the statistics would show that the vast majority of trains, to be honest, you can stretch your legs and play bowls down the aisle. So it's it's a really important point: this that numbers don't tell the full story. We and yet we tend to think they do.
0: Yeah, and it's it's interesting, like those examples which you're talking about there about about. Trains or about wealth inequality, it's like are are governments any better set up to try and adopt this more um, sort of imaginative route problem solving route than businesses are, or are governments facing exactly the same challenges? Uh,
1: governments are worse governments are worse because the governments are worse because they don't have a marketing function, and we forget that about the marketing function. We've devalued it into being a comms function. But when you look at a business or an experience, through the eyes of an individual customer you see different things and different things take on importance compared to when you um, see the business through the eyes of a balance sheet because i think this whole question the marketing function which government singularly lacks causes it to rely excessively on lawyers and economists who tend to have top-down solutions involving compulsion or incentives Um, And other people, this is Richard Thaler, who actually won a Nobel Prize for Economics. He said the way government works, he's talking about Washington, but it's the same here, is it's a bunch of lawyers who occasionally take advice from economists. Anybody else interested in helping out the lawyers need not apply. And there are two problems with that, one of which is you look to compulsion or incentives before you look to voluntary persuasion, which seems to me the wrong way round. You should only use compulsion or incentives when you can't persuade people to do the thing by providing information or reasons or exhortation or, you know, sweet talk or whatever it may be. Social pressure, social proof, social norming. There are lots of tools you can use before you have to drag financial incentives into the game. Um, that's the first point. But secondly, it also causes them to see the world in a particular way. And it doesn't see the world as it's experienced by an individual uh, over time. And I'll give you a lovely example of this, which is I, I want to buy an electric car. And so I thought, well, before I buy an electric car, I know which of the two cars, I'm one of the two cars I'm going to buy. Let me install one of those charging posts at home because I don't want to get home the car find I can't have a charger installed and end up with the next you know two years having a bloody cable coming through the bathroom window right (laughs) so I ring them up they say there's a subsidy for installing a an electric charging post for an electric car I said oh great okay I'll have the subsidy if you don't mind so that saves me 300 quid okay come around and install it they said no to get the subsidy you have to prove you own an electric car but I said look (laughs) you dickwad I want to get the charging post, then I'm going to get the car. If you could actually incentivize people to get electric charging posts at their home and you got them to pay a few hundred pounds for it, you'd have no problem selling electric cars because if you spent 200 quid getting a charging point for your car installed outside your house, you're going to feel a bit of a dickhead buying a diesel, aren't you? Right? Mm. So this whole thing is a failure. They have an incentive for buying an electric car and they have an incentive for buying a charging post. But actually, the incentives operate, in a sense, the wrong way around. It's catch-22. And that's that's the classic thing that would arise when you see like a state, or you see like an economist, or you see like a lawyer. And in fairness to marketers, you know, the best ones, we talk about being customer-centric. I'd take that further. I think in behavioral science, you also need to be amygdala-centric. So it's not enough to be customer-centric in, in terms of listening to your customers, because deep down, your customers don't really know what they want, Okay. Or they misrepresent what they want because they post-rationalize their emotional predisposition by, you know, essentially contriving a bunch of plausible sounding reasons for why they want something. Okay, Um, but uh, in many cases, I think um, that's a fundamental mistake because uh, what you get is a misrepresented view of where the real emotional desire, the unmet need is often unmet because it's unspoken. Nobody before Uber came along said, I want a map. Okay, no one before Red Bull came along and said, I want a weird tasting drink. No one before Starbucks came along and said, I want to spend $3.50 on a cup of coffee. In fact, if you'd asked people before Starbucks existed, most of them would have told you the concept sucked and you ought to piss off. In the case of Dyson, nobody wanted an $800 vacuum cleaner. Okay? So, it's not safe to say we're customer centric in the sense of just listening to what consumers say because the prefrontal cortex is a bullshitter and it's completely delusional about the role it plays in decision making.
0: Yeah, and it's, it's, it's interesting, I guess, just quickly coming back to that government point. Like obviously, in the last sort of 12 months, you've heard more and more, probably than anyone's ever heard from the government, that we're following the science. Um, and I think it's got like interesting implications because. As you say, there's 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 behavioural science slightly wrapped up in that as well, but then there's but you
1: can't you can't follow the science because the science is is um, there are two things you have to consider. Okay, one of which is simple ethics, which collides with science. Scientifically, the best people to vaccinate first in the UK would have been young ravers in their twenties and thirties because they're super spreaders. Okay, so if you want to actually Um, reduce the spread of a virus Um, inoculating the highly sociable first would almost certainly have made more sense than inoculating elderly people who were typically self-isolating and generally don't go into mosh pits okay right I'm 55 and I I continually have rows with my children because they say no we want standing tickets for this constant I say I'm perfectly happy to buy you a seated ticket And they said, no, 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 we want standing tickets. I go, why would you prefer standing tickets? Are you fucking insane? But of course, if you're 19, that sort of stuff is fun. It's sheer hell if you're 55. Okay, I I really miss the fact that Glastonbury was cancelled because I derive a huge amount of pleasure every year from Glastonbury by the knowledge that I'm not going. (laughs) You see? No, no, I can. You know, I might I might watch something on television, but the knowledge that I don't have to be there gives me an extraordinary. It's called Jomo, which is the joy of missing out. (laughs) And it's something you something you acquire in later life. And um, (laughs) and, um, uh, but interestingly, okay, this is. uh, But. Scientifically, you would have vaccinated those people first. Ethically, you can't say you know your grandfather had to die because we had to inoculate this guy who wants to get off his tits in e, on e in Manchester, right? You just can't say it. Secondly, the science doesn't work because you've also got to have a behavioural factor involved. Now, the only people who really understood this years ago, they're people like Aesop who understood it. Uh, Orthodox Judaism understood it. You know, there are you know there are Judaic laws which are, when you look at it, ingenious behaviorally in terms of, uh, you know, how a society can function. I think Judaism, you know, was way ahead of the curve. You might argue Quakerism was also ahead of the curve in some of this stuff. But it was religions, in a sense, not science, which got to this stuff first. Now, let's explain something. I think, to be absolutely honest, right, I think that the chance of transmission out of doors is vanishingly small, right? OK, and it, I, you know, there is data to back that up. So those crowded beaches didn't seem to lead to any outbreaks at all. They couldn't trace a single outbreak to a beach. There's a problem, however, there, because what if you what if you follow the science and say you can do what the hell you like outdoors, uh, you know, as long as you keep a reasonable distance? But you can't go indoors. There's a problem there because outdoor socialising tends to lead to indoor socialising, right? Particularly in the UK, because you go, okay, it's getting a bit dark, it's getting a bit nippy, you know, the patio heater's not really doing the job anymore. Um, th- why don't we move to the conservatory? And then from the conservatory, people start using the bloody loo, and then the next thing you know is there are five people in the bloody kitchen, right? so the science would say hey no real need on restrictions on outdoor behavior the behavioral science would say be a bit careful there because um you know it's you know there there are sequential consequences from allowing this behavior and so so the idea that of the sort of dawkins brigade that if only you had enough information you could effectively decide perfectly every decision is completely spurious. I mean, put another way, Richard Feynman said, you know, any scientist outside his specialist field is just as capable of being a total klutz as anybody else, okay? And so, you know, this is not to disparage. What you've got to be really careful is people say, oh, so you don't believe in vaccines? Of course I fucking believe in vaccines, right? Okay, I'm simply saying that there are aspects of life which are highly complex, they're highly path-dependent, And the idea that you could just translate the science into legislation um, isn't safe. First of all, you come into conflict with ethical considerations. Secondly, you come into conflict then with uh, behavioral considerations. You know, there are some behaviors which are actually nothing to do with, you know, you might want to encourage certain behaviors, not for the behavior itself, but for, you know, but for the fact that it makes you mindful of something. Now, there was this really weird belief, which I don't know where it came from, that wearing masks might not work because it makes people overconfident. Now, my argument was the great thing about wearing masks is if you spot someone not wearing a mask, you know, they're slightly lackadaisical about this whole thing and you can give them a wide berth. So but I mean, undoubtedly, that's an area where there's behavioral complexity, because there are cases, undoubtedly, where you make people feel safer, and they overcompensate. I mean, I've mean, i never had a, you know, the urge to snog someone in a mask. Okay, <laughs> so it all strikes me as distinctly implausible. But you know, that that argument, I thought that argument was wrong, by the way, I thought the overconfidence argument was just plain, straight wrong. But nonetheless, I, I, wouldn't say, I wouldn't be so confident of my rightness as to say we need to keep a watching eye on this because it could be, in certain circumstances, a consequence of this.
0: As you say, I think people, uh, people often just look for that extreme angle of that extreme view of something. I think like the whole working from home um, debate is another example of that, of a lot of people suddenly saying, oh, well, that's the end of the office. Everyone can work from home now. Yeah, um, to
1: be honest, it should be the partial end of the office. Um, and the re- the reason I believe this is that a large amount of business travel and a large amount of commuting was normative, performative, and driven by things like presenteeism. It wasn't... I mean, I used to get annoyed by people. I said, look, why does everybody travel in at 8 o'clock in the morning on a train on which you can't work because it's too crowded? Okay. And then they get into the office at nine o'clock and then they spend two hours doing email and looking at screens, screens, which, by the way, would be exactly the same were they at home. okay? and so even before we talked about, you know, the two day week or the three day week in the office and the four day week at home, um, uh, I always thought there was a sort of stupidity to this because I always used to work from home in the morning, travel in on an empty train, work on the train. And so the amount of time my commute took out of my working day uh, was minimal. Whereas if I travel in earlier, the amount of productive time that my commute took out of my working day was about an hour and a bit, actually more, because two directions sometimes, okay? And so there's something a bit weird here, which is that I think an awful lot of this was just driven by social norms, the assumption that you could only transact with people if you'd met them in person. Now, there's a cost to Zoom. Okay, this is this is a really interesting asymmetry. Okay, Zoom is not quite as good as meeting face to face most of the time. Although, eh, for introverts, for certain people, for certain meetings, I think actually Zoom improves it. I've got a financial advisor. I want a Zoom-based financial advisor, right? I don't want a guy who wants to come around to the house when I've got to sign papers because that's a pain in the ass. And it means I've got to get home by seven o'clock and my wife's got to be home at the same time. We've got to get a diary appointment. But I want my financial advisor to bully me a bit to save money because otherwise I'll just piss it up the wall on consumer electronics, right? So I need this guy to bully me and Zoom is just the right amount of bullying, okay? I don't want a guy sitting in my kitchen, getting me to fill in forms right but at the same time I like a guy who's you know, a bit like a I, I, it's a peloton for money basically this is what I've got out of my financial advisor you know it's someone bullying me on a screen and I think there are lots of roles that can be performed some medical roles some educational roles that can be performed much much better virtually but nonetheless in certain settings there's a cost to not being there in person but the cost is very, very visible and very salient. The opportunity cost of demanding that a meeting be arranged and that you can only meet with and talk with for an hour those people who happen to be within reach of London. And the opportunity cost of saying the only people we can employ among younger staff are people who can somehow afford to move to the most expensive city um, outside kind of Tokyo and a couple of other places, okay? This is the extro- The fact that I can't really make my staff rich, OK, because by demanding that they live in London, I can give them, you know, fa- fancy, fic- you know, what young people want, yeah, fixy bicycles. <laughs> you know, I can give them all that hipster shit. Right. But I can't actually give them a nice place to live, mm. which they own and they- in which they bring up a family. OK, that's a huge opportunity cost. And we're not factoring this in because we we just took the cost of London as being a given. But if I pay a member of my young staff who lives in London, okay, if I pay them a pay rise, 50% of it goes in, well, 40%, 50% goes in tax. Actually, more than 50% goes in tax, probably, of the increment. Mm. And ultimately, uh, travel and accommodation costs will take up 50% of what's left over. So it's an incredibly inefficient way to reward people. Every time we have a round of pay rises at Ogilvy, we should actually write letters of congratulations to -to buy-to-let landlords. Not really to our staff. You know, congratulations, you can now rip off this guy a little bit more. Okay? Because in the long term, that's what happens. And so, I mean, I you know, I this really I mean you know, I've got one colleague who now basically is going to work from Sheffield. As I said, you know, if we pay him generously, he'll be in the Yorkshire equivalent of the Playboy Mansion <laughs> in ten years, right? You know, put kettle on the vomit grotto. But um But, you know, it's a really interesting point, which is that there are asymmetries of perception. We notice, so costs, unnecessary costs are really, really quantifiable. Lost opportunities aren't. Mm. And so most of business gets focused on reducing visible costs rather than maximising potential opportunities.
0: Yeah. Yeah, interesting. So it's a case of actually the benefits that, that are just potentially so long term or quite long term hmm. that they're just not being realized right now. or They're just not very clear.
1: i was talking to someone at Coke. They're hiring for the global marketing team. For the first time ever, there is no presumption that you move to Atlanta to do the job. That's really important. It's also really important for geographic inequality, um, by the way. It might turn out to be hugely important for countries like South Africa, India, etc., who are English speaking and, you know, in the case of South Africa, in a pretty cool time zone. Yeah. And I spotted in fairness, you know, to me, he says self congratulatorily, um I did spot this when when Zoom came along which was the first technology which wasn't a bit shit. Okay? I did spot this in about 2017 2018 when Ogle we got a Zoom account. I said okay, we're going to use this to change the way we work. And one of the things we very rapidly discovered is you can sell over Zoom but you can't sell over email. Okay? that yes as humans we need some face to face exposure to trust someone else you know i'm not going to send someone a contract for something if i've never met them and i've never seen them but um uh, but this is a really uh, this was a really important discovery i just said look this is actually a game changer and we started ended, ended up working for silicon valley companies ended up working with companies in the middle east uh you know i'm on three calls i mean one of the things that will happen actually is the world will align slightly more along linguistic lines and slightly uh, slightly less along geographical lines because i must have had since lockdown i've had 10 meetings with people in new zealand now i've obviously met a lot of kiwis in london but i've never actually been to new zealand and you know i'd have to take two weeks off to make the trip worthwhile to be absolutely honest okay um but i've also had 10 times more meetings with people from india Ogilvy india and clients in india than i did beforehand i've had fewer meetings with europeans as well interestingly so i think we you know we need to basically accept the fact this is a much much bigger change than most people have have considered yeah you know i mean those one day business trips to amsterdam for a one-hour meeting those seemed normal in 2015 i think they seem ridiculous now you know you know ultimately, you know, um, and don't get me wrong. I mean, one of the interesting things would be to go on a working holiday where you literally go and live somewhere else for three weeks. and for ten days, you actually work from because if you if you go west, right? it's i I worked from l a for a week. It's absolutely fantastic because you get up quite early in the morning and then by lunchtime, the buggers in London have all gone home. so you've got the afternoon to spend in, you know, not quite at the beach, you know, You at know, Gold's Gym, he said, implausibly. Uh, but, I mean, uh, you know, there are ways in which you can play this in completely different ways. So air B2B is a really interesting idea, you know, the idea that you rent an interesting place to work for a few weeks and, you know, nothing I'd like more than spending three weeks a year in, the, uh, in New Mexico and maybe I can work for five of those days. Daniel Kahneman actually says it's better to work in the middle of a long holiday because he says, actually... If you take just take 15 days off doing bugger all, um, the novelty of leisure dissipates by the end of the holiday. But if you're going for a two-week holiday, it's a good idea to work for two or three days in the middle because then you get the nice feeling of being relaxed all over again. Now, I don't know if Kahneman, I think kahneman has got the data on this, but it's quite interesting.
0: What's your take, I guess, on brand building now? Like we've we've emerged out of the sort of TV industrial kind of complex. Brands, as you say, are, are behaving in very different ways to how they once did. Like, what are the most valuable forms of, of, of brand building now?
1: I think one of the things we'll have to have is a complete re-reckoning of how advertising works. Because um, uh, the idea that this is a kind of programmatic efficiency um, game, I think will soon bec- it will soon become apparent that this is completely mistaken. And that a large part of the reason for marketing is probabilistic, that uh, the value of indiscriminate fame is that it exposes you to upside opportunity in areas of the market and ways in which you'd never even anticipated. And I also think that, um, uh, so I think this business, if you think about it, the job of a marketer is ideally to sell a product to someone who hadn't even considered buying it at full price. And the job of programmatic advertising is to sell products at a discount sooner to people who would have bought them anyway. Right. Now, that's not an unvaluable. That's not a useless thing to do. Uh, just to be clear about this, overcoming inertia by getting people to buy something sooner or by getting people uh, you know, over the cliff and actually making a decision is a perfectly justifiable use of of um, advertising. And, you know, James Webb Young says so, you know you know, a large part of the role of advertising. And if you look at how marketing uses the price mechanism, we don't use the price mechanism in the way that economics thinks it works, which is uh, people who couldn't afford it. Uh, in other words, capturing more of the deadweight loss is how you describe it in um, in economics, okay? We don't really do it like that. We do it to create a bargain, you know, 50% extra free. We get it to, you know, to get people over the edge. You know, I I bought a Samsung watch because... Um, there was a short-term offer of a trade-in on your old Samsung watch. And I thought that won't last forever. I was meaning to get a new digital watch, to be honest, in a year's time. But since there's this temporary discount, it kind of pays me to act a bit sooner. Okay. Now, um, it's worth remembering that marketers don't use price. In the, they use it to overcome inertia. You don't just drop the price of things. You hold a sale and you make a load of noise about it. Okay. You don't just drop the price and allow people going in to say, well, previously, um, you know, um, that purchase would not be utility maximizing, but now it is. It doesn't work like that, okay? You use it to generate behavior and to overcome inertia and to, you know, to some extent, maybe to compensate people for trying something different, you know, or to get people into a habit. Those, that's how you use price in marketing. It's very, very different from the way in which economics thinks it works. Mm. Um, But I think there has to be a total reckoning of the value of things like fame and um, uh, the value of scale, because if you're only doing this kind of programmatic marketing, uh, what you're doing is you're pursuing efficiency, but you're in many cases getting trapped in a local maximum. And this is, I think. I think that, that 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 idea of marketing as just hitting the right person at the right time with the right message as though you can know, okay? Is basically something that makes sense but doesn't really work, hmm. okay? So really important phrases, okay? Chris Graves, partly my colleague, is responsible for this. Just because something makes sense doesn't mean it's true, okay? And just because something makes sense doesn't mean it'll work, all right? And just because something doesn't make sense doesn't mean it doesn't work, it might just work in ways that you can't quantify or ways you can't predict or ways you can't explain. So a large part of fame works in ways that you could never quantify. You know, if you're the chief executive of Rolls-Royce Aero Engines, I was at school with him actually, Warren East, um, and, you, um, uh, and you ring up somebody, they'll call you back, right? If you got a call from him, you call back, right? Now, you can't quantify the value of that, but if I get a call from someone at Zog Enterprises, okay, I don't call back right? Now, you can't actually put a value on all those things. The fact that, you know, that trust in the meeting is taken as much more as a given, you demand far less legalistic, all those benefits that arise from trust and fame and the fact that you've invested in your brand reputation and you're clearly reputationally vulnerable or fragile through having invested this money in advance. You can't really quantify the value of those things, but just because you, you can't count it doesn't mean it doesn't count to paraphrase Einstein, supposedly. And so, you know, one of the things we'll have to do is we'll have to rethink this a lot because it's fundamentally wrong. I mean, it's it, it's fundamentally imbalanced. It's not wrong, it's imbalanced. It's out, it's out of whack. And this efficiency game appeals to people of a highly kind of uh, technical nature. And it appeals to that story put very beautifully by a guy called um, Vijay Banga, I think his name is, who's the chief executive of MasterCard. He said, everybody says, you know, half the money I spend on advertising is wasted. The trouble is, I don't know which half. He said, I need the half that's wasted to make the other half work. That actually this there's a trade-off between exploration and exploitation, exploiting what you already know and exploring what you don't. And if you come up with a very narrow, the other, the other reason I think we can say this doesn't work is that the advertising I see online does not remotely reflect after 10 years of heavy internet use with cookies accepted, with no attempts really to maintain privacy. What I see advertised online does not reflect what I spend my money on even remotely. Okay. And I'll give you an example of this. I bought my daughters some tights, I think it was expensive tights directly online from the manufacturer. And for about six months, I got ads for nothing else. (laughs) Nothing else, right? Okay. Now, uh, during that same period, I've been searching for, watching YouTube videos on, um, basically talking about in the presence of Alexa, the possibility of buying an electric car. I haven't seen a single fucking ad for an electric car. I never see any ads for packaged goods. I spend £100 or so a week on food. I don't see any ads for things I can add to my Ocado order, right? I don't see any ads for electric cars. I don't see any ads for people who will install an electric uh, car charger. I don't see any ads for solar panels, which is another thing I've discussed and investigated quite a bit. But I see tons of ads for these flaming things. Now, why? Well, one, it's huge margin, right? I don't know what the margin is on, on premium hosiery, but it's going to be batshit insane. Secondly, they're selling direct so they don't even lose the retailer cut, okay? Thirdly, it's a measurable impulse buy. In other words, you see the ad, you buy the product, and so to them the case for advertising is spectacularly good. But because of this obsession with direct and immediate measurability and the speed of the um, uh, the speed with which the response follows on the heels of the stimulus, things like tights and fashion and women's fashion, which are impulse buys with a very high margin, okay. Uh, where you go straight to the retailer and buy the product advertised in a measurable way, when those three things are in combination, okay, high margin, high degree of impulsiveness and a high degree of measurability, you'll get an insane level of over-advertising. And when you get the electric car, now bear in mind, okay, you know, okay, Tesla doesn't advertise much, but I haven't seen any ads for the Nissan Leaf, I haven't seen any ads for any other, I haven't seen any ads for the Jaguar I-Pace, I haven't seen shit right? I've done everything I can. The only people who get it a bit right, YouTube at least presents me with a lot of electric car films to watch every time I go on YouTube. Okay, so that's that's working. But this whole fucking um, holy grail of personalization isn't working, is it? Right? Because I, I'm seeing ads for a very, very tiny and unrepresentative cross rep, cross section or, of my own wallet. And the thing I'm really debating spending money on, which is a bloody 30,000 quid electric car, okay? Nothing. I don't see any ads for anything by Unilever. I don't see any ads for anything by PG. Now, okay, you know, I I don't, you know, I don't, I'm not seeing this stuff, right? Now, I occasionally see ads for those fucking weird slippers, and I occasionally see ads for those weird mattresses, okay? You know, that, you know. You know, you might, if I was a septic tank, I might see ads for Warby Parker every now and then, right? And there are a few online brands that seem to have made this thing work. But I mean, after 10 years of not hiding my privacy at all, if this is the best they can do, then it's shit, okay? I mean, you know, we we just have to accept that it's not working. Because if it's you know if I'm not noticing any improvement after ten years in terms of the extent to which the advertising I see reflects my interests and reflects my likely disposable income and discretionary expenditure, then it's time to fucking pack up and do something else.
0: And as you say, the the, the mechanics of it, which lend themselves to people who well the people who've got the wealth of data, the people who've got the um, the machine learning, the proof. It's those people who can be pushing the same solution forward and forward when actually the more creative, the more imaginative solution is off on the other side.
1: And you know, then, then there's also the fact that actually mass media inspire trust because I trust people who are saying something in a public forum far more than I trust someone who's coming door to door. Okay. Now, what's so interesting about this is instinctively we understand all this stuff. But when you put us behind a desk with a with Microsoft Excel, all our instinctive, tacit understanding of what works and what doesn't. You get married in church in front of everybody, you know, and you make the vows in front of everybody, you know, you don't go door to door, making your vows one person at a time, leaving out the one person who knows you're currently having an affair because that will be awkward. Right. We know that when you make a, pre- a promise in front of. I, I wasn't having an affair when I got married. I, it's not going to make that Yeah. <laughs> But the ability to target comes with comes, brings with it the ability to be highly untrustworthy and highly devious, because you can just not advertise to people who know you're lying, right? Now, if you advertise in a public forum, people basically go, well, that must be kind of true because they put it in the Telegraph. Or at least I know it's expensive, okay? You know, if it weren't worth me test driving this car, they wouldn't have put a full page ad in the Telegraph, right? because it would have been a waste of money, because all that happens is you get a thousand people. That actually happened with the Fiat Strada a bit. It was an absolutely brilliant advertising campaign, but the car wasn't all that much cock, to be honest. So the problem with that advertising campaign is you've got thousands of people coming and test driving the Fiat Strada. Nobody bought one. Okay, So it wouldn't make sense normally, under normal circumstances, That also was true of You're Never Alone with a Strand, by the way. It was not a disastrous advertising campaign. Jeremy Bulmore has the data. It was a brilliant advertising campaign for a terrible cigarette. And because it was Ogilvy's predecessor, I think it was Mather and Crowther who produced that advertising, I feel obliged to defend it because it's always used as the example of advertising that really fails. Jeremy Bulmore claims that in 50, 60 years of working in advertising, he's never really seen advertising that doesn't pay. Yeah, But the one, you know, the one thing that may be the case is that when you do mass advertising, it pays in ways you never expected. You know, whereas if you do highly targeted advertising, uh, yes, you will sell to people who probably would have bought the product anyway, but you won't get the amazing surprises. You won't also you won't really discover who your potential target audience is, will you? Because you've predefined that. And so. So I think I think I think it's incredibly dangerous. This is not to say that the bottom of the funnel is unimportant. Emphatically not, because if your bottom of your funnel's shit, if you're not converting people, there's no point in doing a great ad campaign. I get that. Okay, I accept that. But the point is, these things aren't additive, they're multiplicative. And in a multiplicative dynamic, you want to upweight the thing that's being underweighted, because two times two is bigger than three times one. Okay? So the way to make a big difference is to actually spend more money on where you're underspending. Now, if you look at it as if if it were additive, you'd say, we're getting great returns from the money we spend downstream, so we don't need to do anything upstream. But what you do upstream determines the uh, scale of of the effect of what you've improved downstream. So it's a multiplicative uh, uh, connection. It's not an additive one.
0: Rory, I'm, I'm, I'm conscious that our, our time is probably running out. So I've just got three final questions to ask you. Um, the first one, what did you used to believe that you no longer believe in? I used to be
1: probably a little bit of a devotee of this science thing. So I, you know, bear, bear in mind, I spent my first 25 years in direct marketing. And so I spent my first part of my life basically going, you should do more targeted advertising. Targeting is really important. And I wasn't wrong because then direct marketing was under invested in and mass advertising was over invested in okay Mm. Uh, you know i I like to reassure myself with that belief that actually and what's happened is as kane said when the facts change i change my mind and i now think the investment's completely the other way around and i also think the extent to which time and effort is invested in media optimization as opposed to creative optimization is also completely out of whack
0: yeah no i completely agree and Secondly, Rory, if this wasn't your mission trying to, I guess, change the way that people people approach problem solving, what would be?
1: Gosh, that's an interesting question. I think I, um, I'd, I'd love to take the mission into a specific field like transportation and just say, look, actually... The, the, The real mission, the secondary mission is to reform economics by getting people to accept that value is subjective and context dependent and meaning dependent. Value is produced in the mind and is produced by the storyteller and the singer every bit as much as it's produced by the song, as it were. Mm -hmm. Okay, And um, the standard economic model, which is goods dominant, not service dominant, incidentally, uh, overweights the extent to which value is produced in the factory, not in the head. The Austrian School of Economics understood this. They understood that the only real definition of value is what someone's willing to pay for something under conditions of choice. And they accepted the fact that um, uh, marketing uh, created economic value every bit as much as manufacturing did. But uh, that would be my secondary campaign is to elevate the status of marketing, which I think is much more important than marketers realise it is. Because I think even marketers have been talked into this idea that you're a cost. I think the reason marketers are doing some of this programmatic stuff is they're desperate to justify their existence. Whereas in fact, there are only two ways of innovating in the world, okay? You either find out what people want and work out a clever way to make it, or you find out what you can make and work out a clever way to make people want it. Now, the money you make in most reality cases, it's, it's a combination of the two, obviously. But actually, you know, it's a, that's an iterative process that goes in both directions. And I think marketers have become far too apologetic Because they see what they do as a cost when actually it's an inherent part of the value creation process. If somebody doesn't know why they should buy something, have you got a Philips air fryer? (laughs) Okay, go and buy one. Okay, absolutely fantastic thing will change your life. Okay, but if you've never heard of it, okay, and nobody's ever told you it's fantastic Japanese toilet, there's another one. um, Okay, you won't want it. No. So what the hell's the point of manufacturing things that people have never heard of and don't know how to want? Yeah, absolutely. Um and Roy, what and the book, the book recommendation. Yeah. I've already mentioned seeing like a state. I think I'm gonna mention read a load of evolutionary biology because it helps you think in a complex systems ecosystem kind of way. Okay. And so um the trick there is I think. Oh, God, it's so difficult. But maybe The Darwin Economy or The Economic Naturalist by Robert H. Frank.
0: Fantastic. We've, yeah, we've never had someone recommend something like that before, but I think it perfectly speaks to what you're, the change you're trying to make, Rory. The other thing about
1: brand value, by the way, another point I'll make just as an aside, we look at it completely the wrong way because we're always comparing like Samsung to Sony or Sony to Apple or whatever. No, no, no. The real value of a brand is being a brand as opposed to not being a brand, mm. Right. And so we spend far too much time mainly focused on um, the value that you can generate uh, by getting people to switch from, you know, the Holiday Inn Express to the Hilton or vice versa. And the real value is uh, the fact that because of those hotel brands, you can confidently book into the night knowing that the experience is not going to be totally dire. Okay, so the principal brand value of brands to consumers, in my view, is variance reduction. It's I know I'm going to get something which is somewhere between OK and great because I don't want to take the risk of spending money on something that turns out to be a crock of shite. And so I think brands are a very, very valuable heuristic proxy for tolerable product quality.
0: So on that basis, is is like Airbnb like overvalued as a brand on that basis because it, it, it lacks some of the the consistency and the like, oh, I'm sure that I'm going to get what I'm paying for here. Or...
1: Yeah, interesting. I mean, the rating systems are not nearly as good as economists thought they would be, okay? Because you can game the system. Uh, a lot of information gets lost, okay? Um, uh, and so this idea that you wouldn't need brands because you have ratings hasn't really proved to be true. And I think ratings in some cases are highly misleading and undesirable, by the way. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, economists wanted a brand free world because through their model of the world, they see brand preferences irrational. Looked at through a different lens, which is the consumer's own lens, brand preference, which is variance reduction in outcome, is a highly rational approach.
0: There we have it. Thank you so much to Rory. And I hope you enjoyed listening to that. If you did, please do leave a comment or a review in your podcast app. It would help more people discover the podcast and I would really appreciate it. Up next week, we have another fantastic guest, Professor Cal Newport, speaking with my colleague Isabel about his brand new book, A World Without Email. Can you imagine that? It sounds fantastic. That is a great conversation which you do not want to miss. Hit subscribe and you will be the first to hear it. See you then.